goal of Micah was to tell the people as God's messenger what they needed to know. Not what they wanted to know, but what they needed to know. That included what was going to happen in the future. Bear in mind, men and women, we come and worship God tonight. We often use the term that he's sovereign. And that means that he is in control of all history, past, present and future. He knows all things. There is a natural division in the chapter that you and I have just read. I don't know why you've seen it or not, but it will become obvious when I just point it out to you. You see, the opening verses have to do with the last days. Verse 1. But in the last days it shall come to pass. However, when you get to verse 9, there's a different timeline. Because the word there is now. And that word is repeated in verse 11. But now. And it's also found at the start of chapter 5. So there's two different phases that are in focus. Even within this one chapter. The word now refers to the immediate future. The opening verses, first eight, first eight verses refers prophetically to the last days. In those opening verses, the temple features in those words. The temple, of course, was a symbol of the Lord dwelling among his people. You go uh, pre-temple time, you are in the time of the tabernacle. That movable tent that went with Israel right throughout their wilderness wanderings. And of course, the presence of the tabernacle meant that God's presence was there beyond the veil in the Shekinah glory. And that was translated into the permanent temple. It signified God dwelling among his people. And that was the place where he met with them. And that was the place where the people wanted to uh, know the Lord's word and the Lord's will. Uh, uh, even at the temple. The messages from the Lord weren't merely to tell the people what they wanted to hear to satisfy some craving that they might have had. But of course the Lord's desire was to warn the people. To warn the people about the judgment that was coming because of their sin. And judgment that was coming if they continued to rebel against him. But they also were, was a message to encourage those who were loyal to remain so. Despite the difficulties and despite the circumstances that abounded. And so we have in the opening verses, as I've said, the symbolic sense of the Lord dwelling among his people. And where the Lord had chosen to manifest his presence conveys the truth that he is incomparable to any other and his incomparability is beyond any shadow of doubt see I draw your attention to verse 1 it says but in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains and it shall be exalted above the hills and the people shall flow onto it now you've got to understand what that uh, is speaking about and it's merely this that the pagan uh, tribes of Israel they normally would have put their gods away up in the mountains. And the high places was considered as the home of their gods. But you'll notice the words of verse 1 speak of the Lord being exalted above them all. He's above them all. 
He's above the hills. And what is depicted is that there is a universal recognition beyond Israel that there will be many that will flow into it or onto it. Many will flow onto the holy city. They come with the right motive. That is to worship the only true and living God. They come as the disciples who want to take advantage of the teaching that they will hear even in the temple in the holy place. Not only did they come, but you'll notice verse 2 as well. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways. And listen, we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth of Zion. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So not only, <clears throat> not only do you see the nations coming and desiring to be in that holy place. And of course Jerusalem is set on the hill. And you'll notice that maybe from some of the pictures that we're seeing recently. But also from that place, the word of the Lord will go out from it. It'll go out from it to other places. The word spreading out in transforming power as the gospel is proclaimed. And what follows? There is an acknowledgement of the true God. And it's found even in these verses. I want you just to pick up on three things that will be seen. First of all, you look at the word of verse 3. Nations will no longer go to war to settle disputes. He shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. He shall judge. Nations will not any longer strive one with another. The will of God will be done. He shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations. Now, that's far removed from what we're seeing in Israel tonight. But then you've got to go back to verse 1. You see, Micah is speaking about the last days. Days that are still in the future. A time is in view here when all reason for strifes will have gone because there will be an obedience to the standards of the Lord. Psalm number 86, uh, 96, sorry, in the words of verse 13. You just read uh, that verse with me and it simply says this. Behold the Lord, or before the Lord, for he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. There's a time when all reason for strife will have gone and because the people will be in obedience to the word of the Lord. He cometh. He's coming to judge the earth and he shall judge the world with righteousness and people with his truth. And you go to Psalm 98 and the verse 9, the last verse there too, it's exactly the same. It's underlined to us. What a prospect. We, we can scarcely take that in tonight. You, you, you know that the news is full of the war between Israel and Gaza and, and, and the hostilities in that land and, and all the rest of it. 
But what a prospect, men and women, especially to that war-torn part of this world tonight, where the enemies of God are gathered in every side. They're still coming the day when they'll not have any reason to war one with another, because the Lord will have come. And he will judge in righteousness. The second thing, in Micah chapter 4, natural resources will no longer be used for battles but they'll be used for more productive means. Look at the words of verse 3 at the middle part. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. So the sword and the spear is language of war, as the weapons of war, but they'll not need those weapons of war anymore, and so those weapons will be disarmed. Disarmament releases those sources, resources for better use and for more productive purposes. And so the sword will be turned into a plough and the spears into pruning hooks. But that will only be realized when first of all they lay aside their hostility with God. That must take place before hostilities against one another are done away with. Got to make peace with God first. And the third thing you see that follows is an idyllic picture of what it will look like. Because verse 4 says, you couldn't get a greater contrast than verse 3. Verse 3 speaking of war, battles, all the rest of it. Weapons of warfare. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And none of them, none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. What a picture. The picture is of a, a man sitting down under his own vine. It's a picture of satisfaction. It's a picture or a scene of contentment. Content with the provision that the Lord has made. Content with the opportunity to enjoy it. They just sit down under the vine. Humanly speaking, we can't see that now. But then we're speaking about the last days. And these blessings have the best guarantee of all. It's not because Micah said. But it is as verse 4 says. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts. Has spoken it. Has taken the story tonight to the boys and girls. The underlining underlying message was this. God never breaks his promises. Never. He never goes back on his word. He never went back on the word that he gave to Paul. That he would be a witness for him in Rome. Even despite the shipwreck. And God's, the Lord of hosts, has spoken this and will come to pass. Has God given you a promise? He'll not break it. He'll keep it. It's just a wee lesson, not only for children, you see, it's for adults as well. It's good, isn't it? Because we tend to forget that. The Lord of hosts has spoken it. That makes it sure and certain to happen.
despite what looks like an impossibility to us in the light even of current events today. None will be able to overthrow the events that God has planned. You know when you think of Calvary men and women the devil tried his best to overthrow the purpose and the plan for redemption. He tried to prevent the Savior from ever getting to the cross. And when on the cross, he tried to get the crowd to call him to come down from the cross. And we will believe thee. Because getting Christ down from the cross, then the work of redemption wouldn't be finished. None of us could be saved. But he endured the cross. And he despised the shame. And the head of the serpent was bruised, Calvary. The devil couldn't prevent the plan and purpose of God in redemption. And neither will he be able to frustrate God's purpose for the recovery of his people, his nation, or for the events at the end of time. The response to that, the response to the people of the people, you'll notice is, as you find it in verse 5, for all people will walk everyone in the name of his God. And we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. That's what they pledge. They disassociate themselves from the false gods. They pledge that they will live in obedience. They will live in faith before the Lord in dependence upon him. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God. You consider that little phrase, we will walk. It really is a description of the conduct of the whole life. And it will be forever. Faith sees no end to this loyalty. For there will be no end to the Lord's provision. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God. You profess faith in Christ tonight. You will have to walk with the Lord tonight. You can't walk with the world and profess Christ at one and the same time. The Lord said, if you love me, keep my commandments. You obey what this book says. And here is a vow and the response given by the people even to this message of Micah. There's the promise of glory here and also of how the Lord will bring it about. You look at the words of verse 6. In that day, said the Lord, will I assemble her that holdeth and I will gather her that is driven out and her that I have afflicted. You can write over that divine intervention. He will gather them. I think the picture, the analogy there again is of the shepherd. And the shepherd in the flock, he might have a lame lamb and he gathers it up and he brings it into the flock, into the fold. And the lame, the Lord will gather. He will assemble those that were driven out because of their sin. And they'll become a strong nation. The best of all, verse 7. And I will make her that halted a remnant and her that was cast afar off a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. The best of all is the Lord will reign over them in Zion. 
the people can look forward to that eternal reign. For it will be forever and ever. Christ did not come the first time to set up his kingdom. Oh, some of them about that time, they understood that. And they were going to force him to be made a king. But of course he walked through their midst and away he went. He came the first time that he might redeem a people. He's coming back the second time to set up his kingdom. And all the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of Christ. And John gets a glimpse of that in his vision. Because in the words of Revelation 21 and 22, chapters 21 and 22, he describes the new Jerusalem. I wonder, and I'm speaking to God's people tonight, I wonder do we live our days with that anticipation of the Lord's return and the setting up of his kingdom and the fulfillment of what we often say, what is known as the Lord's Prayer. You might say, what do you mean? Well, part of that prayer is this. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know the will of God is done perfectly in heaven. Because there's no sin there. There's no devil there. And you're praying that as it is done perfectly in heaven, so that day will come when his will will be done perfectly in earth. That's what you're praying. We live in our lives in anticipation of that day. I think we can get so blinkered and caught up with the busyness of life and the things that are all around, especially this time of the year, and we lose sight of the very fact that we're just pilgrims passing through. And we lose sight of the fact of the anticipation that one day, we don't know where it is, but one day the Lord's come back for his own. The word now, verse 9, as I've already intimated to you, it indicates a different time scale. It's Micah speaking about a different time. It's speaking now of relatively a time that's close at hand. I'm not saying that he's speaking about the, the next number of months or weeks or years, but it's relatively close. It's probably speaking within a century. He says now, oftentimes the prophets will use that word in that context. And essentially he's mapping out how they would be brought from the present distress until that future glory. And what follows surely underlines the present distress when they are heard in verse 9 to cry out. And where the city is seen to be surrounded and under siege. For it says now, why dost thou cry out aloud? Is there no king in thee? He's not speaking about the Lord there as a, as a human king. Is thy counselor perished? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. And of course, men and women in those days, a siege meant that there was famine. A siege meant that there was a disease that reduced the inhabitants to mere skeletons unless they give in. And, and we don't really have to go back that far. We can go to our own history and our own province. And you can go to 1688. And if we know anything about our Protestant history, which we don't, because we're never taught it in our schools, 
But if we do know a bit of our better history, then we know about the siege of Dara. And the, sh- the gates were shut. And the people in there, there was a famine. The food couldn't get in. There was a starvation. There was disease and death that stalked the streets. And they wouldn't open the gates in the light and in the forces of James's army. And here is the city and it's under siege. And so here there is the cry of alarm and there is a cry of horror. Our human king and whose wisdom, maybe we could say even whose political decisions they had placed so much hope is unable to think his way out of this difficulty. The city surrounded by the enemy. And Micah speaks of what action they should take. They would be experienced in the Lord's judgment. And for their deliverance, they needed to leave the city. They needed to get out into the open fields. You'll notice that he mentions even the city of Babylon. Babylon was a vast, important city in those days. And it could be that Micah is mindful of the prophecy. That the the nation of Israel would be brought into captivity in Babylon. Where would he get that from? Well, if you turn back to the prophecy of Isaiah, you will see it. Chapter 39. In the words of verse 6. Here's Isaiah now. And Isaiah says, Behold, the day has come, that all that is in thine house, and that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord and of thy sons they shall issue from, that shall issue from thee which thou shalt begat shall they take away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon there's the first mention of the Babylonian captivity and Micah makes mention of Babylon but I want you to notice something you'll see it after he mentions Babylon in the middle of verse 10 he says there You underline it if you have a wee pencil. There shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. It wouldn't be in Jerusalem. It would be when they're in Babylon. In that place, the Lord would deliver them. In that place, the Lord would redeem them. God intervenes. And maybe those words would cause you to think of how the Lord intervened for Israel in the whole matter of Egypt. Delivered and redeemed. Brings us in our minds back in history to what God did for Israel back then. God intervened to deliver them from the enemy. And God redeemed them. It speaks of God restoring what was his once to its rightful place. The enemy while used to chasten his people. Yet they will not be able to overcome them. They will not be able to match the power of the Lord. You see they will be restored and in such a way. That all glory is brought to him. Because it will be while they are in captivity that the Lord will deliver them and the Lord will redeem them. The same cycle of events is depicted again in the second mention of now, verse 11. 
Now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, Let her be defiled, let her eye look upon Zion. The people face disaster, then there's the Lord intervening. A similar language to that of Psalm 2. Maybe you do well to turn back just to that wee psalm. A psalm that speaks of how they plot in vain against the king and against the Lord God. Verse 1, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The heathen speaks of Gentile nations. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. It's very similar language. And that's just how many would be depicted today. They, they think they can laugh at the Lord. They think they can ignore what God's word says. What they don't realize is that the one that sits on the throne he, stays, he does so with laughter at their puny efforts to overthrow the king he has established. Verse 4 of Psalm 2 He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. You see verse 12 of Micah 4 says But they know not the thoughts of the Lord neither understand they his counsel. They don't know the one that's sitting on the throne. Many nations gather against the city of, of Zion. They engulf her. And it's emphasizing her isolation and its seamless, helpless position and situation that they're in. What they're heard to say is revealed in verse 11. Let her be defiled. They have a desire not only to capture her, but to defile her. And no doubt the temple there will be in mind. They gloat against Zion. They act in defiance against her God. But there's another dimension. That is, they don't know God's thoughts. They don't understand his plans. The Lord has permitted them to go so far against his people because of their sin. In their proud self-confidence, they're blind to what is happening. For verse 12 says, For he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. It takes on now the analogy or the picture of the farmer. The farmer who sowed the field. And he's gathered in the sheaves of corn. The Lord is the one who gathers them into the threshing floor. And the sheaves were usually taken to a hard, open place outside the city wall because there the corn would be threshed from the sheaves. That's a very vivid picture, as you can imagine. We don't know that do much of the threshing these days it's all machines you can imagine the sheaves been taken and chopped up and the grain loosened by the whole process and that's the picture that the Lord uses he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor <clears throat> and from that the Lord gives the command to Zion in verse 13 arise and thresh 
they were to arise. The Lord would empower his people for the task that he had commissioned them. For he says, I will make thine horns iron, and I will make thy hooves brass. He would empower them. Horns in the scripture speaks of power, speaks of strength. Brass, oftentimes depicting judgment. They would break in pieces many people. You see, men and women, the chapter ends in victory. A note of victory. And aren't we reminded of the victory that's assured even to the Messiah? I, 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 I've drawn you already to Psalm 2. I'm just going to read verse 8 and 9. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It might remind us even of a greater scene. I take you back to Daniel, just a couple of books back. Daniel chapter 2. Familiar passage because it speaks of that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And it was remind. Uh, Remembered that there was one who could interpret dreams and Daniel was called before the king. And the king spoke and the image, of course the Lord gave Daniel the, the vision of it, the interpretation of it. And there's this image. And the image is made of all different sorts. Verse 32, the image's head is fine gold, breast is arms of silver, his belly, thighs of brass. Look at the words of verse 34. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out with thy hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like, look at it, the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. And Daniel was to bring the image. And he was to bring the meaning of the image. Verse 44. And in the days of these kings. Shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. Which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. But it shall break in pieces. And consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. For as much as I sawest that the stone. Was cut out of the mountain. Without hands. And it had break in pieces. The iron, the brass, the clay, the silver and the gold. The great God hath made known to the king. What shall come to pass hereafter? And the dream is certain. And the interpretation thereof sure. And that image depicts the four kingdoms. And there's the Grecian kingdom. And there's the Roman kingdom. And there's the, the other kingdoms. But there's a great stone that appears. And it smashes them all. That's Christ. He is that stone cut out without hand. He shall destroy the kingdoms that raise themselves against him, even in this world that is coming. Even the great Babylonish kingdom and the great Popish kingdom. Babylon has fallen. It's all prophetic. And uh, I'm not going to get into it. That's for another half a dozen weeks or so. <laughs> you'll, not do, you'll not do that in one night. But that's all prophetic. 
But isn't it a similar picture to what we are finding in Micah? And the closing words of verse 13 of this chapter speak of the victory. The very last phrase or so seems to be from Micah as he describes this victory. He has seen the promised victory and is sure of it. And the spoils are duly allocated. After the war, the, the, victory, the victors went in and gathered the spoils. And the spoils are presented to the Lord and for his service. It is his by right because he is the Lord of the whole earth. He's the Lord. He's the master. Not any of the pagan gods, but the God of heaven and earth. His title is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The very title that Paul uses when he writes to Timothy, where we're singing a wee piece of it, even in our opening praise tonight. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and 15. Which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate. King of kings and Lord of lords. He's rightly presented with the spoils from a conquering people. And then a moment, it's just with this little application that I close tonight, never forget that we're on the victory side. We're already on the victory side. Christ has already purchased that victory at Calvary. We're bidden to enter in. We're bidden to take up the spoils for our possession. We are those who have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now, let's not be impoverished Christians, therefore. Christ has already gained the victory. He's already purchased all those blessings for us. But let's not be impoverished, failing to lay claim to what Christ has gained for us spoils of the great battle at Calvary. May we enter in. May we pray them, pray over them. May claim to those blessings one for each one another. I trust